December 14th, 2012. Classes were underway at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Approximately 700 students were present. Eight months before, the school principal, Don Lafferty Hawkspring, had offered a new, uh, ordered a new security system installed. This required any visitor to the school to be identified by cameras and buzzed in. As part of the security system, the school locked all of its uh, doors each day at the beginning of classes. The door was locked when Adam Lanza arrived. Connecticut Governor Daniel Malloy reported at a press briefing, we now know that the gunman used an assault weapon to shoot an entrance into the building. Shoot the locks, break the doors down with your gun. Proactive school, school principal The gunman was 20 years old. He had a history of difficulties requiring psychiatric interventions. We entered the school, he was wearing black clothing, yellow earplugs, sunglasses, an olive green utility vest, and was carrying extra magazines for the semi-automatic Buckmaster that he carried. Staff heard loud noises as he broke the door but they didn't immediately recognize the sounds. When he entered the office, the principal and the school psychologist, Mary Spetlock, were meeting with the head lead teacher, Natalie Hammond. Spetlock and Hospring were killed, and Hammond was wounded. Lanza then entered the first grade classroom, the first grade classroom where he killed two teachers and 15 students. Before Lanza's killing lead was over, 20 children and six adults were dead. It was learned later that Lanza had killed his mother before coming to the school, and Lanza killed himself. The attack on Newton, Connecticut was December 2012. Since that date, there have been 142 school shootings in the United States. Some say that the perpetuators are mentally ill and that we don't have a violence problem or a gun problem, we have a mental illness problem. The Congress last week passed a bill calling for mental illness research. And at the same time, they refused to tighten the background checks for assault weapons at gun shows. The difficulty is, my friends, the label mental illness doesn't tell us anything, anything at all. The vast majority who suffer emotionally are and are labeled mentally ill by some clinician do not harm others, never harm others, have never harmed others, and which doesn't mean we don't know anything about perpetu these perpetuators. Rather than saying the perpetuators are mentally ill, 
it would be more accurate to say the perpetuators have shown a propensity toward violence. Princeton's Catherine Newman has shown that far from being loners, the perpetuators are joiners whose attempts at social integration fail. Many have shared their, their anger at this experience with others, and no one saw their anger, their rage, as a red flag. No one saw their anger as a potentially murderous rage. In addition, psychologist Peter Langman has noted, research has shown the killers do not snap. They don't snap. They plan. They require, acquire weapons over time. They visit their target before the assault. In other words, perpetuators had premeditated public violence. The school shootings are horrors. Terrible, terrible tragedies. However, such attacks are actually only a portion, a fragment of the total harm caused by the violent use of firearms. Each year, more than 30,000 people die. Each year, more than 30,000 die from firearm-related incidents. And members of this congregation know, because you have your involvement in the Mother's Day March for Peace, of the damage gun violence does, do, has done, continues to do, will continue to do unless we put a stop to it, to the young people and community of whole of the neighborhoods of Roxbury and Dorchester. If you've gone to the Mother's Day March for Peace, you probably have seen that big poster board full of buttons, buttons of young people who have been shot, shot to death, buttons that fill up that whole the space as large as our pulpit. All over the United States, parents and other concerned citizens have been demanding that their legislatures act to limit access to firearms. Parents who have lost children at Sandy Hook and other school children are involved. Parents who have lost children to gang violence are involved. Parents who just have, are supporting other parents and one, worried about their children are involved. And People are involved. We have joined them in demonstrations and vigils and letter writing and other acts of witness. And we ask, why can our legislators act? Make laws to regulate firearms. Those background checks would be helpful, so helpful. After all, one needs a license to drive a car. They're not going to require you register your drones and you have to register your motor vehicle. And again, why can't our legislators act? Passing legislation would allow law enforcement to know who has what weapon, assuring that person is competent for safe use. I mean, if a clinician has somebody with a known propensity for violence and there's a database of people who have guns, that could be helpful. Helpful. Why can't we, the people, secure legislation that would require background checks creating the kinds of hurdles we experience 
the kind of hurdles we experience when we go to cash a check. ID. No, that's you? The argument we hear back, the argument we hear back is, argues that gun ownership is some kind of constitutionally protected right, so-called Second Amendment right. You've heard that, right? It's, it's a right. And I wonder, and I hope you will wonder after I finish this sermon, whether the people who argue this have actually read the Constitution. The first 10 amendments that were added to the original draft of the Constitution at the insistence of certain state ratifying conventions in 1789. Insisted. And so the Virginia delegation insisted and actually wrote this. The second, and this was what it says, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of the free state the right of the people to bear arms will not be infringed. Main clause, a well-regulated militia being necessary for defense of the free state. Subordinate clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. At the time the Constitution was written, each of the 13 state governments had a militia. Each of them. They still do, called the National Guard. The state militias were used mainly for campaigns against the indigenous peoples. That's what they were used for. Which in 1789 were the majority of the people in the claimed territory of the United States. And... They were used to suppress slave revolts and poor people's uprisings. That's what they were used for. They, I mean, you don't use the, keeping a militia in Worcester to defend yourself against an invasion by Prussia is not, no. <laughs> Have a militia for a purpose. Shays organized a rebellion because he didn't want to pay his taxes, so they sent the militia. Needless to say, I have feelings about militias. <laughs> every freeholding male, every freeholding male from 16 to 60 was in the militia. If you had a carpenter's tools or, or a little trade or something. If you, if you were just a sailor on the docks, you couldn't get in the militia for the life of you because the militia was intended to police you. That's how it worked. So all that, but occasionally, uh, not so occasionally that, that historians haven't been able to pick up the pattern, men of wealth uh, sent their servants to serve in the militia. Militias were required, the militia permit, the man who was in the militia was required to own a musket, which he took home. But he did not take gunpowder home. Why? Because gunpowder has a way of blowing up. So powder would explode. 
and powder was stored in a powder house. And you can visit powder houses if you go looking in New England with your little, they're, they're on the tour maps, right? Go find a powder house. What are they? They're buried underground because you don't want them blowing up your town. Powder house. So no powder at home, musket on the wall. They'll blow the drum, bing the bugle, the church bells will ring, people will run down the common, and, and then they will um, suppress a slave revolt. Um, again, Madison and others who wrote the Second Amendment were not thinking about individual liberty. I don't think Madison thought much about individual liberty at any moment. They were proponents, they're not proponents of the, the, what the Bundy family are, are spouting out in Oregon. They're not saying that, they, that somehow unarmed citizenry will overthrow the tyranny of the government enforcing the laws on a wildlife preserve and overthrow wildlife preserve laws. Don't burn fires on the wildlife preserve. So the word in the Constitution and in the Second Amendment, the word people is used. The people will have, the right of the people to bear arms will not be infringed. Throughout the Constitution, the word people is used as a collective noun, as the whole. The right, if they wanted to say the right of an individual, a person to bear arms, should not be infringed, they would have said so. They say the people. To have a gun is not an inalienable right of an individual, it's the right of the people collectively. Bundy's so-called militia out in Oregon would have been called a rabble, a lawless mob by Madison and the other authors of the Constitution. Some of you might call them that. The authors of the Constitution were all about providing for a common defense of the body politics organized in legally constituted militias. And to understand the idea of the body politic we wouldn't recognize, I think everybody's not going to be shocked if I say that was defined as white men of property. I heard that the National Rifle Association genius, he was on a radio interview, and he's talking about the Second Amendment. And he argues that the word well-regulated militia meant well-drilled. The, the NRA provides training in gun owners today, which is sort of like regulating target power which somehow fulfilled the meaning of a well-regulated militia. Nonsense. The office of the Constitution meant under the control of the state authorities. That's what it meant. Led by commissioned officers who were gentlemen, assuring that the small property owners in the militia were under the leadership of their betters. That's how it worked. Anyone who thinks that the office of the Constitution were libertarians with romantic ideas about the masses haven't read their own words. They are make quite clear their feelings about the masses all the time. They use words like control. 
the proper ordering of society, order, fear of mobs, and they were cautious men of privilege, not visionaries of unchecked freedom. So what does that mean for us today? Let's leave them aside and go to today. First, since the adoption of the Second Amendment, the courts have always understood the text to apply to the keeping and bearing of arms for military purpose. And second, while unlimited power of the federal government did not limit the, way, the power of the state's government, actually what they're saying is that the Second Amendment is only about the fact that Congress can't keep, keep states from having militias. And you can see why Virginia wrote that in, if you know something. So that this, only the states could regulate the ownership and use of firearms. In the ruling of the United States versus Miller, which is still a definitive text on decision on the Second Amendment in 1939, the Supreme Court unanimously held that Congress could prohibit the possession of a sawed-off shotgun. This later was extended to machine guns. Because this was not a weapon applicable to well-regulated militias. <coughs> Muskets. In the last five decades, the National Rifle Association, however, and this is the real problem in what I'm talking to you tonight about, the National Rifle Association launched a campaign convinced people, convince people that the Second Amendment to right to bear arms is an individual right. Therefore, the people is just a bunch of collection of individuals with guns in their drawer. And therefore, bearing arms is not a collective right, it is an individual right. In other words, instead of people consulting themselves as a state having the right to bear arms, the National Rifle Association position is the Second Amendment gives individuals an unregulated, unchecked right to possess a gun. They've argued that individuals have the right to own machine guns and assault weapons. They actually argue that. They say that any court interpretation that there's a restriction on what a gun means, like you can own a tank as far as the National Rifle says. Don't bring it to church. <laughs> Former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Berger, uh, you remember Berger? Conservative, yeah, Berger remarked that this is, and this is his quote, this campaign by the National Rifle Association has subjected the Second Amendment to one of the greatest fraud, and he said, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public and in a special interest group I have ever seen in my lifetime. Fraud. The National Rifle Association receives most of its money that it spends from gun manufacturers, not from membership dues. Over five decades of propaganda has convinced millions of people that the authors of the U.S. Constitution are intended to make gun ownership some kind of inalienable right, along with speech and praying and stuff like that, right up to the freedom of uh, public assembly, all that. 
that was not, as I've said, that's not their intention. They're intending 13 states to keep their state authorized militias, their National Guards. One Supreme Court um, justice has written, uh, Stevens, that we should actually make change to say, your right to serve in the militia shall not be infringed. And now you can do it. You don't even have to own property to do it. So it's had, this campaign has had its impact. It's had an impact. It's actually convinced people. There are, you can watch the television set and people, Obama, will say, we're not infringing anybody's Second Amendment rights. I think they play into us that idea that there's some kind of inalienable right to own a gun when they say we're not infringing any people's Second Amendment rights. And, and then the courts, of course, are influenced by this climate, not so much that they overthrow uh, Miller, the 1939 decision, but they, in 2008, the Supreme Court under Roberts, Roberts is a conservative too, right? Decided that the District of Columbia cannot, uh, it protects a, the right of, uh, cannot restrict handguns. So that they cannot tell people they can't have a handgun. So the District of Columbia had outlawed handguns. And they said, you can't outlaw handguns. You can regulate them, but you can't outlaw them. Vote was five to four. So four of the justices thought you could outlaw them, and the other five said you could regulate them. In 2010, the same five conservative justices broke precedent, deciding in McDonald versus Chicago that the city of Chicago could not outlaw the possession of handguns by private citizens. It's important to note that the court did not say Chicago could not regulate handguns again, but Chicago couldn't totally ban them. So even with these most recent decisions, the principle of a well-regulated militia is sustained by the courts. They have continued because Miller is case law, and they haven't overthrown Miller, which says it's a military purpose, and therefore you, can, can't, have, you can't have shotguns. So it has we have regulatory power recognized by the courts, recognized by all the courts. And the refusal of Congress to act cannot be said because of the Constitution. It's political and ideological. They're arguing this from political and ideological purpose. They're not upheld by the Constitution. The slogan, Second Amendment rights, cannot be supported. The refusal of state legislatures acts is also like Congress, political, not based on constitution. The co politicians are perpetuating the same fraud the National Rifle Association has done for five decades. And therefore, we're almost making this a, part of the ideology of the people. They're, they're uninformed about what the actual constitution says. As a community, Unitarian Universalists have covenanted to affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and society at large. We are committed to a more peaceful world. 
working for a beloved community where children can go to school free from lockdown drills and threats to violence. We must turn our hearts and intelligence to curtailing gun violence. If the National Rifle Association convinces millions with their ahistoric revision of the meaning of the state militia amendment, we, together with millions of other religious people, can convince people of the truth, of the meaning of public responsibility. There are no private solutions to public violence. There are no private solutions to public violence. Households that have guns at home are more, less than, not less likely, but more likely to experience gun violence. Our culture's openness to the easy ownership of guns is intimately connected with the culture's openness to violence as a solution to problems. This is a conversion of the heart on a mass scale that we're talking about, or we're going to have chaos, as Martin Luther King said some 20 years ago. And I will return to this in, in future sermons, the whole concept of that violence has really gripped our society. Our media and our entertainment systems are replete with the glorification of violence. Our politicians outdo each other with talks of bombings, deploying special forces and other postures to show their tough guy image. None of these solutions would actually solve any international problem, solve any domestic problem. We need to accept that we can not have peace in our homes, peace in our congregations, peace in our schools, peace in our workplaces without working for peace in our nation, in our world. We live in an interconnected world. And again, there are no private solutions to public problems. We can, we can live in peace together. Meanwhile, let us sing 170, 170. We are a gentle, angry people. <laughs>